On this edition of the Scott Thompson Show podcast with Scott Radley, me sitting in for Scott Thompson, we're talking to Don Lavelle Harvard about how we get opportunities for Indigenous women to get a great education and get ahead. This is all part of a day to listen. We're going to be talking about polling numbers from Abacus Data in Ontario. If the election was held today, the provincial election, who do you think would win? You might be surprised. We'll talk about that and... Bill Cosby, big shock on Wednesday when Bill Cosby was released from prison and his conviction was vacated. Why did this happen? Well, we're going to explain it. And you may still be angry, but you will understand probably why that happened. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Scott Radley in for Scott Thompson today. Halfway through the year. Yeah, today is the halfway point of 2021. For better or for worse, some of you will say for better, some will say for worse, but halfway. We we have made it at least that far. There is hope. Today, chorus radio stations across the country are having a day to listen. You heard it with Bill earlier if you were listening to CHML. Uh, and during this time, we're going to hear from Indigenous voices on residential schools and Indigenous affairs and Things that Indigenous Canadians, non-Indigenous Canadians um, can do to bring about change and understand these issues. And I want to get right into it today because uh, to get things started, I'm pleased to bring in uh, Dr. Dawn Lavelle Harvard. She is the president of the Ontario Native Women's Association. She's also director at the First People's House of Learning at Trent University. Uh, Thanks so much for doing this, Doctor. Appreciate it. You're very welcome. Uh, you, uh, there's so many things we could get into, but I want to go here with you because you have worked, uh, as part of what you do to break the cycle of poverty for indigenous women. I know that's one of your goals. And I know that we certainly don't have enough time to answer the question fully, but generally some things, how do we begin to do, how do we do that? How do we make that happen? I know, as I say, I know it's a wildly complicated issue, but how do we begin to do that? So... As you said, this is the current circumstances we find ourselves in are the result of you know, decades of successive governments of underfunding of residential schools and and legislation that was deliberately designed to eliminate Indigenous people. Certainly not to foster any kind of success. But in order to break this cycle, I mean, we need to start first and foremost with education. You know, it's I find it absolutely appalling that. The Canadian government will talk about, you know, their sorrow for these children's bodies that have been found and at the same time continue to discriminate against First Nations children on reserves by underfunding their education. They receive significantly less money than non-Indigenous children in the same province in, you know, communities two minutes down the road. That's, you know, number one. And I think, you know, if every Canadian person was to step up and demand that that fundamental starting point be changed, you know, the politicians who are in charge of that would have to take action, would have to step up and take notice. But there's also all kinds of, you know, there's supporting for First Nations, for Indigenous communities with resource sharing agreements. There is tremendous resources coming out of our First Nations communities that because of the Indian Act, because of agreements the Indian agents signed years ago, that our First Nations are not benefiting from those resources that are being extracted from our lands. So, you know, those kind of opportunities are huge. But the number one thing we need right now that's most critical in light of these findings is support for healing, support for dealing with the trauma so that communities 
can heal, can get themselves into a place where they're able to access some of these opportunities, where they're able to focus on on being able to sustain, to have economic development and opportunities within our own communities, require our communities to have some support and some time to address the healing that's necessary. Because right now, and this is with every new grave we find, communities and survivors of residential school are being re-traumatized, are being taken right back. And some of the healing they've done has is, you know, we're going backwards. But at the same time, recognizing that healing is a long-term journey and a continual process. You know, we had the Aboriginal Healing Foundation um, after as part of the settlement claim for the residential schools. And you know, to fund something for 10 years and to think that generations of abuse and the kind of impact that happened in the residential school can be addressed in a few years of a program and then just expect everybody's going to be better and move on is fundamentally absurd. You know, these need to be long-term commitments to healing and and to improving the circumstances. Mm. We can't live in third world conditions in the middle of one of the richest countries in the world and and somehow be expected to succeed. I know that you have spoken about the importance of getting Indigenous women into university, but to get there, you have to have had your schooling before then. And and I was doing some reading about this. And I mean, if you live in Southern Ontario area, you live near a big city, chances are probably Indigenous or not, you have access to a proper school. But if you're up in some of the more remote areas, reading about the, the, the problem with schools up there, is this... I don't want to simplify it too much, but is this as simple to begin with as just getting a school built in those communities? For some communities, just getting a school would be a phenomenal step forward. Just having a school that's not overrun with mold, that's not, you know, portables in territory, you know, filled with mold, with vermin running over the kids' lunches. Like that would, that would be a great starting point. And it's absurd that we should even have to ask for that. But absolutely, some communities, it, it would be, that would be a fundamental first step is just having a school. But the really interesting part, you know, schooling opportunities in remote communities are absolutely deplorable. But schooling opportunities for First Nations children, even in First Nations that are, you know, five minutes from urban centers like Peterborough, you know, we have Curve Lake that's you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes away. But because of the persistent government underfunding, those elementary schools, those intermediate schools in those First Nations are still receiving half of the funds. And because there's, how do you address the learning needs of students, especially if there's any kind of exceptionality, if you're trying to function on half of the funds that the non-Indigenous schools get? I mean, for any of us who have kids, we already know that schools are underfunded. They don't have the textbooks. They don't have the resources. We're always selling chocolate bars, which my husband tends to eat most of, let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> you know? it, it, it happens. I, I'm guilty, too. I, I admit that. I'm like, you might as well just write the check and let him eat them. Exactly. You know, Girl Guide Cookies, happen. forget it. <laughs> but that's, we know that our you know regular provincial schools are underfunded and struggling to provide the quality of education. So how do we expect a First Nations school that's two minutes down the road but receiving half of the funds per child to be able to produce children that are going to be able to compete? And that's why, you know, there's many families that, that move away from their First Nation in order to give their children any kind of educational opportunity. And that's not a choice we should have to make. Mm. 
Well, and look, it, it seems as though, and uh, I wish we had an hour to talk about this or five. I mean, you, you could probably talk about this for 20 hours and, um, you know, maybe down the road, we'll do the 20 hour, we'll do the full, full day thing just on you explaining this. Cause I mean, it'd be fascinating, but in the last number of weeks and months, it seems like there's an awful lot of talk about improving things. Uh, do you believe these are platitudes or do you believe that real change is happening now? So there's so many things going on with that question. I think, I think there's real change going on in Canadian society. I have seen people coming forward in ways that has never happened before. I mean, I have grown up with, you know, decades of people saying they don't understand what the fuss is about residential school. That was a long time ago. Aren't you people over it? And I said, you know, Nobody would go to a Remembrance Day ceremony and talk to that veteran and say, hey, Frank, the war ended a long time ago. You need to get over it. Like, so there was always that kind of understanding that this stuff happened in the past. You people you need to get over it. But I think now that people really, truly understand the atrocities that happened, that, you know, this one is hard to ignore. And the Canadian society has been really supported in being able to ignore it up until this point. It has been very well hidden. I mean, even the conditions on reserve has been very well hidden by Indian Act legislation that says, you know, once a non-Indigenous community got too big, the local First Nation would be relocated even further away, you know, to to keep them hidden, essentially, and, and to prevent people from being able to see those conditions. So, you know, these stories were not in our textbooks in our classrooms. And, I mean, when I went to school... It wasn't even history yet. It was it was still going on. So, yeah, people have been sheltered from it. And I think this coming forward and, and being across the national media in a way that people can't ignore it and people around the world are looking at this and it can't be ignored. I think that's fundamentally changing Canadians society, Canadian society's image of who we are as Canada, about mm. how that process of becoming Canada, the fact that anybody is questioning Canada Day about what we're celebrating shows a shift in attitude. But at the same time, I get so frustrated because then I see the liberal government go into parliament and vote, you know, to continue fighting in the court against first nations children to fight against paying out the payout that they were ordered to provide by a Canadian human rights tribunal who awarded a certain amount to children who had been, uh, uh, to children from the uh, social, the child welfare from the the Millennium Scoop and the Sixty Scoop, to fight against having to pay out those children who had been traumatized by the child welfare system, disadvantaged. I mean, how do you, on the one hand, say that this is important, yeah. and on the other hand, keep fighting? Again. Mixed messages, mixed messages for absolutely sure. Uh, again, I wish we had a lot more time. Uh, Dr. Don Lavelle Harvard, always appreciate you coming on here. Thanks for doing this today. You're very welcome. Uh, We want to go now to Teresa Hall. She is a residential school survivor who has made it her mission to share her experience so that history doesn't repeat itself. Here is Teresa Hall. Today is a day to listen, a day to hold space for the voices of Indigenous people in Canada. Like Teresa Hall, a residential school survivor, Teresa has made it her mission to share her experience so that history never repeats itself. My name is Teresa Hall, uh, formerly Teresa Okamau Nino Farmaro Upscat First Nation. And um, 
now live in uh, Thunder Bay, Ontario. I'm a former survivor of the St. Anne Residential School at Fort Albany uh, along the coast of James Bay. I attended the school uh, for six years. I also attended the, another residential school at uh, Fort George, Quebec for three years. I was the first female chief in my community to be so elected by, by my people when I returned home. But majority of my life I've lived off or serve. When I heard the um, discoveries of the unmarked graves of the 215 um, students of Kamloops uh, Residential School, it triggered my mind of the experience at the residential school being away from home. I know that I have heard at Fort Albany, where I St. Anne's Residential School, where I attended, that there were people that said students that never returned were suspicious of their death. And they even found some bones near the barn where the residential school is situated. But the person who found the human bones gave them to the, uh, the local priest. The individual who found the bones was hoping that they would be reported to the police, but it was never done. We never heard about it again afterwards. So when I heard about the undocumented graves, and I thought, wow, maybe that's what happened. Definitely, they need to do the very same thing, identify the areas. Maybe you can find unmarked graves as well in, in, at the St. Anne's Residential School. I know the colonizers, the settler government, stole our land using the doctrine of dis discovery to justify their means to steal our lands. And as a result, they enriched their lives with the resources they mined from our, our land. While our people are in poverty, live in third world conditions here in Canada, even in Atwapiskat, where my home is. We don't have any water. They can't drink from the tap because it's contaminated. It's not healthy. Our children get sick. Our babies get sick as a result. They get rashes as a result of bathing in that water. If the discoveries that was done of the 215 undocumented graves, if it had been any other nation other than indigenous, police would be right there investigating. And eventually that investigation, charges would be late. I don't see any of that happening here. You know, it's one thing for the government to apologize for the atrocities that were done to us at the residential school. And then they promote reconciliation. I don't believe in the reconciliation anymore after the discoveries were done because there's no concrete evidence that they're, they want to do, they want to uh, share the resources of our land, that some of that land be returned to our First Nations. Until then, our people will remain in poverty. And it's tragic. It's tragic that what's happening, what has happened to us. And yes, we are resilient. Like I said, I was appointed to the Justice Peace Bench and I served in that fashion, in that role with honor. I wanted to be a role model for my children so that my children could also aspire to a higher goal, higher education. I believe I've done that. And for my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren as well. That when I hope someone documents our history, the histories of pe people who have aspired regardless of what was done to us. And when people tell us to get on with our lives, we can't. We can't do that because uh, uh, there will be more. I'm sure there will be more discoveries of unmarked graves once every 
every residential school territory or uh, the land that surrounded the residential school is uh, investigated. Just like what they did at Kamloops Residential School using the latest technology. Fort William First Nation set up a, a teepee where we can go and pray for the souls of those 215 individuals, students. My family and I went, my daughter, my granddaughter, and prayed using our, our tobacco, praying to the creator that the souls of those uh, 215 students move on in peace now that their graves have been found. I hope there will be closure for those uh, families. Miigwech. Today is a day to listen. To learn more about how you can do something, visit downywenjack.ca. Scott Thompson Show here on 900 CHML. Scott Radley here as part of a day to listen. I want to bring in Isaac Murdoch, who's an Ojibwe storyteller and traditional knowledge holder, who is encouraging everyone to take grief and negative energy to create a beautiful and better future for all children. Here he is. These stories may contain details that some listeners may find distressing. If you are Indigenous and in need of support, the Hope for Wellness Crisis Line is available 24 hours a day at 1-855-242-3310 or visit online at hopeforwellness.ca. Today is a day to listen. Radio stations all across Canada are elevating the voices of Indigenous people in Canada, like Isaac Murdoch, an Ojibwe storyteller and traditional knowledge holder. Isaac encourages everyone to take grief and negative energy to create a beautiful and better future for all children. My name is Isaac Murdoch and I'm from Serpent River First Nation. I'll tell you a story, and it's a bit of a personal story. My, uh, back in the 70s, my youngest brother, Francis, my brother, Mike, and my brother, Scotty, were all involved in an Indian Act apprehension. And I remember my mother screaming and crying, and she, she didn't want us to be taken away. And they carried us into the van, and we were quickly uh, sped off. But what they didn't know was a three-year-old was hiding underneath the van. And the van ran over him. And he survived. But his hair fell out. And the doctor said his hair fell out because of the fear of what took place. And he had patches in his head for years afterwards. And... Recently, I was talking to him, and I said, what do you think about all this talk about the Indian Act and the Indian agents? And he says, you know what? He says, love is the greatest thing. He goes, love is the most powerful thing. He says, why should I be mad at anything? Because it always feels better to love something than to hate something. And he's been disabled all his entire life because of this incident. And so that message that he gives of love and hope and peace, I think is such a powerful message. 
because ultimately that's what's going to change things. That's the, the medicine right there. And, you know, I think that a lot of our people went through hard times. We suffered the intergenerational effects of residential school. And there was a lot of damage done to our communities through pollution, through all sorts of environmental factors, not having clean drinking water, you know, the loss of our lands and our family units. But that doesn't mean that we don't exist. What it means is that we're still here and that we're uniting and that we are multiplying like rabbits and that we're not going away. We are here. And so it's time now to work together to make this place better. And I believe that we can do it because within all of us, we have the greatest thinkers and we have the greatest heart people to make this happen. And just like my brother said, we just have to love everything. And so I just wanted to share that with you. Thank you. Naho miigwech. Today is a day to listen. To learn more about how you can do something, visit downywenjack.ca. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are, give or take, a year out from the next provincial election. Now, that is in political years, political days, political time. That's a long time. A million things can happen between now and then that will affect people's thinking for better, for worse, moving from one party to another. But that said, it's hard to imagine anything could come up in the time frame between now and then that would be bigger than COVID. I mean, what could possibly, uh, we don't even want to imagine that, but I mean, what could possibly be a bigger issue than that? So maybe we have some sort of sense now of what this means for a year from now. So if we were heading to the polls today, what would happen? Well, thankfully, Abacus Data has done a little work for us and is able to give us a bit of an answer. Well, more than a bit of an answer, a pretty clear answer if the polls were to happen today. David Coletto is the CEO of Abacus Data. He joins us now. David, thanks for doing this. My pleasure, Scott. Great to be here. Well, let's go right to that question. We're at the polls today. You and I are standing in line to vote right now. Who wins? It's close. Um, you know, our, our ballot question has the progressive conservatives and Doug Ford at 32, the Ontario Liberals at 31. And the NDP at 25. So, you know, it it might come down to a, f- a handful of seats. So, to, 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 to be able to say who wins, uh, I actually am not clear. It's it's really close. Mm. But what is clear is, and we've seen this now for a few months, is that the Tories are still competitive, but they are about nine points off of where they were in the last election. Um, the Liberals of come back from the dead. Um, they're at 31, up 11 points since the last election. And the NDP is holding on, but they've fallen back nine points as well. And so, you know, it's, it's a really messy kind of uh, view right now. And I think just, you know, in how you set up this, this conversation, we're coming out of and still in a pandemic. Um, many Ontarians, and we can talk more about this, don't know, certainly Stephen Del Duca, the Liberal leader at all. And despite being opposition leader for almost three years and NDP leader for 13, 
uh, Andrew Horvath, Hamilton's own Andrew Horvath, is still not that well known across the province. And so this means there's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of volatility, but uh, it's, it's a really close race right now. Uh, you've just said about five things that I want to get into. Uh, we can't do it all in one question, but let's start working our way through this. Um, the idea that Doug Ford and the provincial uh, and the conservatives are still in front, I think is going to come as a surprise to some people because the media has been pretty darn hard on him and social media has loudly decried him. And I'm wondering if this is a case of, it's not quite the majority, so we can't say the silent majority, but the, the silent large group speaking out and saying, yeah, you know what, that's not reflective of everybody. I think that's the case. Um, you know, sometimes we listen to, to the loudest voices or those that, that agree with us and we, we lose sight of, of some perspective. Now, Doug Ford is, is, is still, there's still more people across the province who have a negative view of him than a positive one. More people disapprove of the job the government's done overall than approve. But, you know, there is nothing in this poll that we finished on June 20th that suggests to me they are finished and they can't come back from this. This is not the kind of environment that Kathleen Wynne faced the year before. Right. She was, right. you know, and the Liberals were completely decimated. So, you know, th- and, and it's really interesting. I mean, we've been tracking how people feel about Doug Ford since he was elected. And in the first two years of his mandate, he was probably one of the most unpopular premiers in the country. We consistently had 60% of people telling us they, they disliked him, they disapproved, and only about 20% liking him. Those numbers are, are close to catastrophic. It's hard to get reelected with that. But then the pandemic happens, and for about a year, more people actually said they liked Doug Ford than disliked him. It was a complete reversal of how people felt about the premier, and I think about the government overall. It's only been since the spring and if you remember that, that Friday afternoon press conference where they announced new restrictions, you know, uh, related to the third wave, that we saw over the course of two weeks, his numbers fall pretty far. And they've recovered slightly, but they haven't returned to where they were before that press conference. And so today, Doug Ford is in a much better position than he was before the pandemic, but not as strong as he was in the first year of it. When people, I think a lot of people gave him a second look and actually said, wait a second, He's not as bad as we thought. He's doing a pretty good job at keeping us focused and calm and, and that reassuring voice every day that when we saw him in those press conferences. So now, if you are someone who does not want, does not like Doug Ford and does not want him reelected, you look and say, yeah, you look where he was compared to 2018. They're down nine points from that moment. The flip side, if you like Doug Ford, I'm looking at one of your graphs here of uh, um, of how we are doing as a country now it's a country headed in the right direction the number is going way up but the country includes ontario and i'm thinking if people are being optimistic about the way things are going that may benefit him as well it it certainly can and and right i mean this is a snapshot today and your point about a year being an eternity in politics this may not be how people feel 12 months from now but you're right i mean the, the the swing in how people are feeling about the country and the province has been remarkable almost half of Canadians think the country's headed in the right direction. That's up 15 percentage points since the end of April. So in a very short period of time, we've kind of woken up and said, okay, you know, this thing looks like it's over. We're getting vaccinated. And the same is true in Ontario. 45% of Ontarians think the, the province is headed in the right direction. So if, if, if the premier is able to maintain that kind of positive mood, it's hard to mm. be come. It's the same reason that Justin Trudeau desperately wants to call an election as soon as he possibly can, right? Because the conditions are ripe. Now, they may not be that way for the premier 12 months from now, but they're certainly better than they were, 
either before this pandemic or obviously at, at different stages of this pandemic when things look pretty bleak. David, do you, this is a weird question because I know that the way I'm going to word this is, is not accurate, but I was going to say, might people forget about COVID by election time? They're clearly not going to forget about COVID. I don't mean that, but as far as how miserable they've been or angry they've been or whatever else is a year enough time. Let's say we're getting into phase two of the opening today. Let's say it continues on. We don't have another flare up or something is a year, the kind of time that would separate a party from this situation that would help them greatly. I think it, I think it is. I think, you know, we have a very short memory. It was only a few months ago that we thought Doug Ford and Justin Trudeau, mind you, were doing a terrible job you know, on the vaccine rollout, and today we feel much, much better about it, right? Um, so we forget. We forget the things that, that kind of angered us. Um, there are things you can build. You know, Kathleen Wynne, people, you know, it was a cumulative kind of uh, experience where people at the end of the day said, look, I'm done. We need a change. I don't think we're there yet for Doug Ford. But, but in my mind, you know, in reflecting on all the polls we've done since Doug Ford was elected, Doug Ford's his worst enemy, when mm. I think the government behaves in ways that people feel are overly partisan, when they behave uh, behind closed doors, when they make decisions that people don't really feel are in the best interest of the province, that's when they get in trouble. And as conservatives, they, 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 they carry around a little more vulnerability because it's easy to kind of paint them as being mean or, or only you know, focused on the bottom line, which is not always the case. And it's true of other parties as well. And so... You know, coming out of the pandemic, I think the measure of whether Doug Ford can, can easily win another term is whether he behaves and his government behaves more like they did in the first year of this pandemic when they were making reasoned decisions, listening to experts, um, being seen as caring about the public will, goodwill, uh, sorry, the public benefit, as opposed to things that might be, mean, you know, only for their political benefit. And that's going to be the lesson. Uh, and we'll see. I, I mm. think... I think that's ultimately how this is going to go. If Doug Ford's yeah. going to either beat himself or he's going to get reelected, because I think the opposition parties right now are not really um, gaining much traction and the leaders aren't as compelling, I think, as some opposition party leaders could be. And you just mentioned desire for change. I'm looking at another one of your stats and graphs here. The, the desire for change among the populace is way, way down from what it was in the last election. Last election, I mean, two-thirds of people almost wanted change. That was, you know, understandable after a long stretch of the Liberals and Kathleen Wynne was unpopular. But a lot fewer people citing that as their desire this time. It, it is. And it's still 46% who definitely want to change in government at Queen's Park. Uh, which is not in a, you know, it's not a safe number for, for Doug Ford, but it's nowhere near as bad as it was, you know, probably facing Kathleen Wynne. And I was a youngster, but if you go back to, you know, the end of the Bob Ray years, same kind of, you know, real yep. desire for change that elected Mike Harris. But they have to be careful because what these numbers also show is there's enough people out there. If they all consolidate or, 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 or rally around one of the opposition parties, right? Um, there's enough there's enough latent opposition to Doug Ford that if everybody goes and votes liberal or everybody goes and votes NDP who don't like Doug Ford, they could, that, that, that party could win. The, Bennett, the, the real path for Doug Ford is that the opposition parties are divided and, and people don't like, there's no one alternative that everybody can get behind. And that's, that's, that's from a strategic perspective, pure political perspective, uh, that continues to put Doug Ford in, I think, the driver's seat right now, despite some of the challenges he's faced in the last few months. Well, yeah. And when you talk about consolidation, I mean, your numbers show that 
Doug Ford is, as I say, is leading right now, but as far as second choice, he's way, way down. The flip side is those who are saying they are favoring the liberals, their second choice is NDP and vice versa. So you're absolutely right. I mean, if there was a consolidation, Doug Ford would be in trouble. The problem is I don't see either Andrea Horvath or Stephen Del Duca abdicating the throne and saying, okay, I'll step aside to make sure we defeat Doug no. Ford. I see no likelihood of that or no chance at all of that happening. And there, and there are enough new Democrats who actually say they prefer Doug Ford over Stephen Del Duca. Really? There are enough liberals. Yeah. And there are enough liberals who say they prefer Doug Ford over Andrea Horvath that makes that consolidation challenging to, to build right I, I do think that like you have to keep in mind in the final days of the last provincial election the liberals although they got decimated in the final days they actually kind of gained a little vote, uh, support and they, they ended up at 20 percent if even ten, you know five or ten percent of that would have went over to the ndp and they had the ndp was successfully consolidated it may not have been a big as big a majority government for doug ford as it turned out to be so there's all like we, we always assume that there's a linearity in politics, that if you are a progressive conservative, then your next option would be liberal and then beyond that, new Democrat. But that's not how a lot of people think. And they, they look at these issues and the leaders in very different ways. And so you could be a new Democrat and you'd much rather have Doug Ford as premier than Stephen Del Duca or another liberal. And, and so that complicates, uh, as you said, that that ability to consolidate opposition support and gives that for a chance to pull it all together. I'm laughing because here in Hamilton, I'm waiting to meet the first new Democrat who would say, oh, if if Andrea Horvath can't win, I really hope Doug Ford does. The next person, the next new Democrat that tells me that will be the first one. Um, so I, I'm, you know, I, I'm very surprised. I, I'm not doubting you, but I'm just, I'm very surprised. Maybe that's in different parts of the country here it is, like in Hamilton. New Democrats seem very, very dug in that it's NDP or left. Well, I mean, Hamilton also is like, you know, home to Andrea Horvath. And so there's yep. a, a deep, a deep affiliate uh, affection for her. And the New Democrats have a long history in Hamilton. But if you just drive down, you know, the 401 or down the 403 and you get into, you know, places like um, Brantford or London or Windsor even, right? These are places that have, have voted NDP and, and many of them have MPPs from the NDP, but many of those voters despise the liberal brand. They despise mm. the, the, you know, the, the, the perception of elitism and, and what the party's done in that region. And so their, their next choice would be Doug Ford. So, yeah. And it depends, and it may, and, and federal it depends may. on the Doug Ford we're talking about, right? Folk, yep. populist, friendly Doug Ford appeals to a lot more people than uh, an, a mean-spirited partisan Doug Ford that sometimes came out in his first few years in, in office. And the federal politics always bleed into provincial with governments and stuff. We only have 30 seconds, so I just have to ask you this really quickly. Uh, one more thing, maybe the most startling number to me in all of this, and you've alluded to it already. Andrea Horvath, this will be her fourth election as party leader of the NDP. And yet when you ask about people's opinions, impressions of leaders, 40% say they don't have an opinion. How is it possible? that you could be leader for that long and still remain essentially in the, in the eyes of people an, an empty suit that has no form or figure that they, they don't even know who you are. That seems like a gigantic failure. Um, I, 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 I agree. I think, you know, I look at that number and I say, how is that possible? Um, yeah. Maybe part of it goes to the fact that opposition leaders generally have a hard time in Ontario getting attention. But I think it also has something to do with, with, with how she, um, how she's, 
you know, performed and the challenge she's had, you know, even being the opposition leader. It's one thing to be the third party leader and not get a lot of attention, but she's had three years as leader of the opposition in the middle of a crisis. And, and you're right. I mean, more people still view her positively than negatively. She's the only leader that has that. The only one, yeah. But you're, you've been a leader for more than a decade and you still have such a large number of people said, I don't really know much about her. Um, you got to ask that's, why. I think you do. That's have pretty stunning. David Coletto, CEO of Abacus Data. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Scott. Let us keep rolling here with, um, with a day to listen, uh, which we've been doing all day here on Chorus and at Chorus stations and radio stations around the country. Shaina, pardon me, Novalinga is a young Inuk who is reclaiming her heritage through Inuit throat singing. She has an amazing 2.5 million TikTok followers, and she educates her generation about Inuit culture and tradition and history. Here she is. Today is a day to listen, a day to hold space for the voices of Indigenous people in Canada. Like Shaina Novalinga, a young Inuk reclaiming her heritage through Inuit throat singing. With an astounding 2.5 million TikTok followers, Shaina Novalinga educates her generation about Inuit culture, tradition, and history. Hey, hi, Hanupisi, how are you? My name is Shaina Novalinga, and I am from a small town called Bouvanetuk, which is located in northern Quebec and currently based in Montreal. So Inuit throat singing is traditionally done between two women facing each other, and we're imitating the sound of nature and animals. And it's sort of a game. It's very informal. And there's a follower and a leader. And we're just going back and forth. Inuit throat singing was banned by Christian missionaries for many, many years. And it was only until recently that we started taking back this tradition. Luckily, there were a couple of elders that knew how to throat sing in our community. And that's how my mother was taught by one of these throat singers. It's important to, to keep our traditions alive. All of our ancestors, our family members have been doing this for so many years. And it's beautiful to be different, to have traditions that are different from everyone's culture. And it's important to pass it down to our younger generations to keep it alive as long as we can. And it's crazy because throat singing has always been taught orally. So nothing of that is written in the history. So it's very important to keep our, our traditions alive, to, to honor our ancestors, to honor our people. It has been really, really empowering to be able to reclaim our traditions, especially learning it from my mother. It's empowering to take it back from what was taken away. My grandparents were part of these schools. They were put in boarding schools and they were told not to speak their language. And it's a really sensitive topic. It has brought trauma and it's this cycle that is passed down. Of course, everything has been affected because of that. And our families are doing everything they can to break that cycle. My hope for the youth, for the Indigenous youth, for Inuit youth, is that they embrace their 
identity as much as they can because our families couldn't. They couldn't practice our culture. They couldn't speak their language. And now we can take that back. So my hope is for everyone to reclaim their heritage, their identity as an Indigenous person and to be proud of who they are. And I want the youth to know that they can do anything. They can achieve any of their dreams. Um, and I hope they know that they can do it and that they're beautiful and that they're worthy of a beautiful life just like anyone else. I want people to know that we are still here. We exist. We're right here. Nothing is history. You know, a lot of people say, yeah, but that's the history. That's the past. It's not. A lot of it was very recent, one generation away, two generations away. And because of that, a lot of it is passed down. You know, the trauma is passed down. So I want people to understand why the things are way, the way they are right now and to understand and appreciate our people, to listen to our stories. Reconciliation, you know, everyone's talking about reconciliation, but first we need to listen and respect each other and then we can move forward. Today is a day to listen. To learn more about how you can do something, visit downywenjack.ca. You can find uh, Sheena Novalinga on TikTok and Instagram. Look up at Sheena, S-H-I-N-A, Nova, N-O-V-A, if you are interested. Coralie mcguire Surrett works to break the cycle of violence against Indigenous women as Executive Director of the Ontario Native Women's Association, ONWA, uh, which seeks to empower women so they may achieve social and cultural well-being. Here she is. Today is a day to listen. Radio stations all across Canada are elevating the voices of Indigenous people in Canada, like Coralie mcguire Sarret. Coralie works to break the cycle of violence against Indigenous women as the Executive Director of the Ontario Native Women's Association. ONWA seeks to empower women so they may achieve social and cultural well-being. Hi, I'm Coralie mcguire Sarret. I'm the Executive Director here at the Ontario Native Women's Association. What we need our collective community right now to know is that we need more than half mass here in Canada. We need action. We need to make sure everything that's come to light that's been hidden for so long never happens again to any other generation of people. You know, we have to remember that our women and children are the center of our community. And that's what colonization did and took to us. When you're looking at the intergenerational trauma and you're looking at the issues we're facing right now, but we also have to remember the resiliency of, of Indigenous women and Indigenous communities. During all of this, I have seen nothing but leadership from women coming together to do healing, to light sacred fires, to have conversations and continue to work and support the community, provide services, do programming, do healing in the middle of the most horrific trauma that we face, that we've known about. But once again, recently, what's shown us is we've been seeing the devastating impacts of colonization in the wake of the news of the finding of, of the mass graves. And we know that there is more to missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, the Joyce Echiquan hearing, and also Barbara Kentner's justice that was happening locally too in Thunder Bay. The interconnection to all of those issues that have happened, we need to look at 
What has happened since then? What, what have we done recently to ensure that this never happens again? We have so many reports. We have so many calls to action. We need the TRC calls to action to be an election platform. There's always going to be elections, federal and provincial. This is where our allyship needs to come in. This is where we need allies. We need allies to tell their local government that this is important to them and they want to see action on this. That's where Canada can begin to improve. This is where where allies and non-Indigenous people want to help and support and how they can help and support is by making sure that this doesn't stop here, that we do call-outs for an apology. The fact that the Pope refuses to apologize, that's pretty impactful, that can't admit to being held accountable or the wrongdoing. What we've learned from all of this is we cannot address colonization with the same systems that have sustained and perpetuated violence against Indigenous women and girls. We need change. We need systemic change. We need to do things differently. We need to overcome the disruption of Indigenous women's voice. You know, we have to be strength-based. We need to include Indigenous women in political decision-making, in political life. We all need to do this together. Everyone has a role. Like that's that's the beauty of, of this at the end of the day when you're living, when you're, when you're coming into crisis and how do you get out of crisis? You know, we're coming out of a pandemic where there's an opportunity right now for us to come out of a pandemic all safer, not just physically from a virus, but safer physically from violence. And that's what we need to change. We need Indigenous women and grassroots organizations for them to be supported to do this work. You know, on we've been doing this work for 50 years, and a large portion of it has been largely unfunded and unrecognized. What we need to do is really make sure that this story doesn't stop. We need people to continue to fight together to say that Indigenous people are going to be safe in our community. Because if we have safe communities where Indigenous people are safe, the whole community is going to be safe. That's where the change needs to happen. Today is a day to listen. To learn more about how you can do something, visit downywenjack.ca. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. I gotta say, I I, I saw this during a break, and I, I boy, I, I did a double take on this one because did not expect to see this happen. Bill Cosby, who has served two plus years now in prison in Pennsylvania for sexual assault. Well, his conviction has been vacated and he either is or is about to be released from prison. Why? Well, there's a couple of reasons here. And I want to bring in uh, local criminal defense lawyer, Jeff Manishin, to join us and discuss this. Jeff, thanks for doing this today. Appreciate it. Certainly, Scott. As it turns out, I had a little bit of time this afternoon uh, to uh, take a look at the decision and uh, to chat about it. Well, this is one of those ones that um, may drive some people batty because I, I think that if there was a decision that said, you know, we found new evidence uh, that somehow shows that Bill Cosby didn't do what he was accused of doing, that's one thing. This is one of those ones that I think people will will chalk up to a technicality, and I think that's going to make a lot of people upset. Agree? I'm sure people will. I can tell you that I've read the decision, and I believe I understand it. I'm realizing it's American jurisprudence, so I'm giving you a Canadian criminal lawyer's interpretation of reading an American decision. And there may be a basis where once explained, people might say, oh, well, geez, I don't like it, but I guess I see how they got there. All right, let's start with the the first one, which I think is the 
slightly more complicated one. Let's get that out of the way first. And that's this, that he, there was a Bill Cosby trial the first time that ended in a mistrial. They couldn't come to a decision. The jury couldn't reach a, a unanimous decision. And so in that one, uh, there was the woman who had accused him of sexual assault and there were other women who had made accusations about his behavior in the past, but they were not admissible. The judge ruled when they went to the second trial, those five women's evidence was allowed to come in, was ruled admissible uh, to show a pattern of behavior. Why would that be a problem? Well, uh, that's what I would have guessed would have been the basis for the appeal. The appeal. Okay, but I'd, I'd have been wrong. It wouldn't be the first time I'd have been wrong. Uh, the beauty of today's Internet-oriented society is I can click on the decision, Scott, and read it. And it, it has nothing to do with that. In fact, they specifically said, we don't need to deal with that issue. Right. I, Sorry, I, 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 I misspoke. That was... I misspoke. That was one of the claims that the defense had, had, had led to, had asked for, had pointed to as one of the issues, but the court ruled that, uh, that that was not the issue. Yep. The, the issue here, and this is, this is a bit of a head scratcher to me. And, and boy, someone at the prosecutor's office is, uh, is not going to be having a good day today. So I'm reading from ABC News website right now. Um, apparently the prosecutor at the time had given a written agreement not to prosecute Bill Cosby back before this became a criminal case on the condition that he would um, testify in a civil lawsuit that Let the me uh, complainant. I've actually read the decisions. Okay, go. Okay. It's, it's way easier because you can't, what the newspaper would do with it, it's a short story. It, it's hard to sort of explain. I'll, I'll explain it in the following way. Um, and the, the court describes it. So the complainant attended and reported that he had sexually assaulted her. The, uh, the detectives looked into the claim, investigated it. They considered the fact of how her credibility might be. They, at the time, they felt there was no corroborating forensic evidence. And they took the position at the time, or they thought at the time, on the laws that existed at the time, that evidence from other complainants was in it, would likely be inadmissible. So they didn't really feel they had a good enough case. Here's what the prosecutor did. With a view of helping Miss Constant get some measure of justice, he said that he would announce that they would decline to prosecute Cosby for the incident involving her. What would that mean? That would mean that assuming she sues him, which in fact she did, he would not be able to claim the he couldn't be able to plead the fifth because the prosecution said, no, he won't be charged. So what that would do is it would make Cosby have to testify at the discovery. He wouldn't get to claim the benefit of the Fifth Amendment and decline to answer. And he did get subjected to discovery. And he did give answers that were bad for him. And what happened? Ultimately, he settled the civil case for millions of dollars. So that's what happened at the civil case. Ten years later, with a new DA, there's a decision made, no, let's prosecute Mr. Cosby. We've got the potential similar fact complainants. And further, let's use that testimony from the discovery to cross-examine them. Well, the court said that was unfair. It was and unfair when you explain it, it was and, and, and Jeff, because they made a careful decision that he would not be prosecuted, knowing that would make him have to answer. It would be unfair yeah, and, to later get to use it to cross-examine them. And so apparently within the decision, and it was a four to three decision from the, the state appellate court, the dissenting judges said, yeah, that's true. It was almost like a bait and switch. So the remedy is order a new trial, but they won't get to use that evidence. They won't get to use that deposition testimony. And the majority of courts said, that's no remedy. He's already owed millions. Once they decide that they're going to prosecute him, he's owed millions. You can't put him back to the position he was in. And so the only remedy is 
ending the prosecution and uh, that basically uh, throwing the charge out. When you when you explain it like that, I mean, look, even those who would say he may be guilty of sin, it, it does sound like you have created a situation that is unfair in legal terms for him. As again, we're not making a comment about his behavior or not, but clearly it has. If if you were put in a position guilty or not of something, and they told you, "Oh, talk, and you're going to be fine," and then you talk, and they say, "Aha, gotcha," I mean, that, that's a problem. And and further than that, it's talk in a civil case, and then ultimately you're going to wind up settling the civil case, which is something that the DA actually had in mind might help Miss Constant. So he did it having in mind that, look, I will help you on the civil case by announcing he won't be prosecuted, and that will help you in the civil case. And sure enough, it did help her in the civil case. And he announced that. He basically he, he made it a public position. He's not going to be prosecuted. He did a press release, and ultimately... Uh, he it put Cosby in a very difficult position in the civil case. He wound up, he gave answers that were problematic. He made a multi-million dollar settlement. The court says that's exactly what that DA had in mind to help Miss Constant out. I don't, there's not enough here to be able to run a criminal case, but here's what I can do for you. I won't prosecute him, you know, and it'll help you in the civil case. I'll announce I'm not prosecuting him, will help you in the civil case. And he did. So what happens then, years later, new prosecutor says, I'm not bound by that. Uh, I'm going to look to use the deposition, and I'll, you know, I'll introduce it at the trial, which they did. It was pretty devastating testimony. So, Jeff, if you were looking at this, and you are looking at this from a distance, who in the prosecutor's office is in the wrong here? Is it the first prosecutor for not prosecuting? Is it the second for ignoring the agreement, or is it neither? Well, I think the way we could phrase it is this. You, as a prosecutor, and I was one for eight years, you make the call based on what you believe to be a valid, sound, considered decision at the time. Sometimes it's to withdraw a charge. Sometimes it's to accept a plea of guilty to a lesser offense because you have problems with your case. Um, there, sometimes you may want to, you may agree that somebody might get some immunity. Okay. I mean, it's like asking the prosecution in relation to the Paul Bernardo case. Was the deal the wrong deal to be able to uh, resolve Carla Molka's case? And they'd say no because it got us Paul Bernardo. We needed her to get him. So that's the call that we made. Decisions made by prosecutors, it's rather hard to be able to say today, Scott, this or that is wrong. But I would say this assume for the moment that's the deal that the previous prosecutor made. The subsequent prosecutor, I think it'd be fair to say, should have really appreciated he'd be stuck with it. And you know what he could have done is not use that testimony. He could have said, look, it's not fair for me to get to use it. I won't, but I will still prosecute you, and I'll use the evidence of the other, the other complainants. And we might have seen a very different world. Maybe, maybe not. We have in Canada the concept of similar fact evidence to be able to use evidence of you know, other complainants, other witnesses to be able to support the testimony of one of them. We'll never know, Scott, unless this case gets appealed further and maybe gets sent back for a new trial. What would have happened had the prosecutor, the second prosecutor said, no, nah, it's not really fair for me to use that deposition testimony. I'm not going to, but I will run the case against you using the other compl- the other witnesses. So interesting that you brought up the Bernardo case, because I was, as you were talking, I was thinking about that deal with Carla Homolka that a lot of people in society, a lot of people understanding even that a deal had been made, still said once those films were found, that deal should be ripped up and thrown away and we should not. But the prosecution, the crown at the time said, we, 
we can't, you give your word, you have nothing left for future cases if you stick it to this one, because what defense lawyer is now going to believe us or or believe we have any credibility? And I, I kind of look at that here is by going against the first prosecutor's deal, even if it's a donkey of a deal, you kind of, for your own credibility as an office, you kind of had to follow it, didn't you? Hey, once again, Scott, and I always fill you with praise when you you have the $100,000 question, which you did again. There actually is Canadian law that supports that proposition you've just raised. Say, for example, police investigate a guy in a sexual assault. They check with the complainant. She says, I really want this guy to get help. Have him just get treatment. They check with the Crown. The guy can agree he'll get treatment. He gets the treatment. And some years later, the complainant says, no, I really want to proceed. And the Crown tries to proceed. Those sorts of charges get thrown out because it's fundamentally unfair. It's a stay of proceedings for an abuse of the court process or an infringement of the guy's right to fundamental justice. So we actually have a similar kind of approach here if there's been an agreement made that the accused relies upon to his detriment, or if he follows up to his end of the bargain, it's held out, he's accepted it, he's acted on it, to later as a prosecutor change the deal and say, no, we're going against it. There are cases where decisions such as those are thrown out. So the reasoning process, Scott, in Canadian jurisprudence parallels, at least to some extent, what we see in the Cosby case. Yeah. And, and the one other example, we only have a few seconds is, I mean, imagine someone who is got a deal to testify against someone else in court and then gets up on, on the dock, on the dais and gives their evidence that tends to be damning against them as well. And then the crown attorney says, oh, you know what, what you said, we're not sticking with our deal where you deserve more. That would be the end of them being able to make deals with anybody that would end it. Uh, certainly, that's one of the key features, too, is you are expected as a prosecutor, if you make this commitment, assuming the other person lives up to his or her end of the bargain, to honor it. That's mm. really the responsibility, and you're right. It could impede your future prosecution uh, resolution agreements if one felt you weren't bound to follow it. It is a uh, it is a stunning story today. Did not expect to be seeing this one today. And uh, Jeff Madison, really appreciate you jumping in on such late notice. Thanks for taking the time today. Certainly, very interesting issue, and it's it's a decision that when people understand it, I think they'll come closer to being able to accept it. They might not accept it, but at least maybe we can get them closer to that if it's valid, if it's sound, if it makes sense. Yeah, and they may they may accept it, but be mad at the prosecutor, the first one. But you're right; it's uh, it's a little more complicated than just saying, "Oh, Bill Cosby got off." Yep. Uh, Jeff, really appreciate the time today. Thank okay, you for this. Always a pleasure, Scott. Thanks. Bye. Uh, as we say today, uh, switching back, switching gears here for a bit today is a time to listen. That's what we've been doing on CHML and on other core stations all over the country. Heather Bear is the vice chief of the Federation of Sovereign Indigenous Nations in Saskatchewan. Uh, she is a survivor of the Labrette Industrial Residential School and was a day scholar at the Maryvale Residential School, where 751 unmarked graves were recently discovered. Here is Heather Bear. These stories may contain details that some listeners may find distressing. If you are Indigenous and in need of support, the Hope for Wellness Crisis Line is available 24 hours a day at 1-855-242-3310 or visit online at hopeforwellness.ca. Today is a day to listen, a day to hold space for the voices of Indigenous people in Canada. Like Heather Bear. Vice Chief of the Federation of Sovereign Indigenous Nations in Saskatchewan. Heather is a survivor of the Labrette Industrial Residential School and was a day scholar at the Maryvale Residential School, where 751 unmarked graves were recently recovered. 
My name is Heather Bear. I'm from Ochapoy's First Nation, from the beautiful, unceded, unsurrendered Treaty 4 territory. And I am a vice chief for the Federation of Sovereign Indigenous Nations. I want to, first of all, acknowledge our heavenly creator today. It's a beautiful day. And with the unearthing and the uh, evidence that has come forward with uh, the little children that went missing so long ago, the little children that went missing that we heard stories about and we say whispers. I'm a survivor of not only a residential school in Labrette, but also I was a day scholar at a residential school uh, in Maryville, where, of course, uh, we all know 751 unmarked graves were discovered. I know there was always stories as a day scholar at Maryville, and when you think about the realities just imagine those children, those babies, and every one of them, they had a name. They were loved. They had families. They weren't just a number. You know, the thought that they had died lonely, they died afraid, they died abused, the way they died, the whole circumstances, it's just so profound in light of everything that's coming. And, you know, that understanding about healing, that we, we don't all heal at the same time. You know, and thinking about where do we go from here now? What is the path forward and why? There's a reason why. Why at this time has this happened? And I can only think about the revitalization of our culture. Of course, you know, when you look at the genocides of our people, it was cultural genocide. You know, our language, our culture, our values, our customs, everything good about us was being stripped away. Our descendants that were left back without their children can you imagine your town, your city, with every child was taken? You know, there's an amazing song called Amazing Grace. I was lost, but now I am found. I think of those little children that they're uncovering. And I think of, I was blind, but now I see. You know, I think of uh, our white brothers and sisters. Uh, 1772, I believe, uh, John Newton, I think was his name, a captain slave trader, wrote that song after a miserable storm and he cried unto God. <laughs> a miracle happened and he wrote that song. If he could change, they say, there is hope. And I think that song does represent hope and humanity for all of people. When we go back to treaty, we made that promise that we would live in harmony with our white brothers and sisters. So that, to me, is something that is sacred. The, those promises were made with a pipe, so the Creator is involved. And I, I'm a strong believer in that. And uh, I know that there's hope down the road for us. Our uh, white brothers and sisters need to do the work uh, in repairing and doing what you can do to reconcile and reach out because I know there's a lot of you that are traumatized. It's not only First Nations. There's many non-First Nations peoples right now that are crying and feel ashamed and feel hurt. And, you know, what does that say about your history, right, <laughs> and legacy? And that's not a lot to be proud of, but it's not your fault either. But uh, I think we all have a responsibility for, you know, a better world, a better tomorrow. When you look at the whole reason why this happened, it had to do with land, power, and money, and to get rid of the Indian problem. But we're here to stay, and uh, 
Like I say, tomorrow, there's always tomorrow. Today is a day to listen. To learn more about how you can do something, visit downywenjack.ca. Uh, this, as I say, has been a day to listen uh, here on CHML and across many other radio stations. I want to go now to Tabitha Bull, who's the president and CEO of the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business, who explains how Indigenous people were excluded from Canada's economy and how we can support Indigenous business today. Here's Tabitha Bull. Today is a day to listen. Radio stations all across Canada are elevating the voices of Indigenous people in Canada. Like Tabitha Bull, the President and CEO of the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business, Tabitha explains how Indigenous people were systematically excluded from Canada's economy and how we can all support Indigenous businesses today. Oni, Tabitha Bull, Indigenous Cast, Nipissing, Indigenous Dem. Hello, I'm Tabitha Bull. President, CEO of Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business, a proud member of Nipissing First Nation. Indigenous people have been systemically and purposely uh, kept out of the economy of Canada through the Indian Act. Uh, many people don't know that from 1881 until 2014, the Indian Act actually contained a permit system to control First Nations' ability to sell products off of reserves. And also, um, Indigenous people, First Nation people, uh, were not considered Indians under the Indian Act if they obtained a secondary school degree until 1951. If you were a lawyer or an engineer or a doctor, that meant you were no longer considered an Indian under the Indian Act. And, and that's where we lost a lot of mentors and youth being able to look up to Indigenous people that had those degrees and were in those professions. I think it speaks so much to the loss of intergenerational wealth when we look at Indigenous people today and we look at Indigenous business owners. We've lost that intergenerational wealth of like, you didn't have a home to pass on, but you also didn't, if you didn't have a business, we see now young Indigenous people that are starting businesses and some of them are saying it, it wasn't, if it wasn't for their father or their mother that was able to start a business, they probably wouldn't have finished high school. They wouldn't have definitely have started a business themselves. So we have a lot of years to catch up on. And I think all of Canada needs to support Indigenous economy to ensure that we can close those gaps. Despite that we were effectively excluded from the economy, Indigenous people have persisted. There are close to 60,000 Indigenous businesses across Canada in every sector, in every size, every province and territory. We see Indigenous businesses also within their business plan, at the root of their business plan, ensuring that there's an opportunity for them to give back to their community or to support Indigenous youth, to support Indigenous women and girls and education. The other uh, you know, thing I think that we're seeing that is such an important area of growth is that Indigenous people have always been sustainable, have always looked at the environment and protecting the environment. And most businesses in the Indigenous community include that at the root of their business plan. So now when consumers are looking at wanting to buy products that are environmentally safe and that are sustainable, and now that everybody's looking at ESG, Indigenous businesses have been doing that since they started. And I think now the consumer is catching up to the importance of that work. We talk often about reconciliation and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. TRC number 92 specifically speaks to Corporate Canada and how Corporate Canada can support Indigenous people through reconciliation. And at CCAB, that's really the root of the work that we do. It's about 
bringing together Indigenous and non-Indigenous businesses in ways that they can become equitable partners in looking how Indigenous businesses can get into the supply chain of corporate Canada. And we truly believe that procurement strategies to ensure that you're mandated and committing to buying from Indigenous business is one of the key areas of growth that's going to ensure that we can continue to grow the Indigenous economy. There's so much that anybody could do as a consumer. So as an individual, look at where you're spending your money and support Indigenous business, but also as an investor, look at the companies that you're investing in and pressure them to ensure that they have Indigenous inclusion strategies, that they're working well with Indigenous people and Indigenous business. And the last thing I would say is within your organization, ask your organization what they're doing. What are they doing to support Indigenous business and Indigenous people? And request that of them, whether you're an Indigenous employee or not. There's so much that corporate Canada can do to move the needle. And it's not about spending more money. It's not about more tax dollars. It's just about looking at where you're spending your money and directing that in ways that are going to support the economy. Today is a day to listen. To learn more about how you can do something, visit downywenjack.ca. Really appreciate all of you being here today. Thank you to Jordan for lining everything up, to Will for keeping us on the air. It's always a good thing when you're a radio show and you're listening, you're hearable. When nobody can hear you and you're a radio show, basically you're just an homage to Marcel Marceau. That's not quite the same thing. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.